Hello, welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold, and today I'm welcoming Father Serge Propes, a Dominican priest and a member of the Western Dominican Province Preaching Band. And we're going to talk today about the readings for the fifth Sunday of Lent, specifically the one about the woman caught in adultery, and then also about St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. So, first, we'll turn to the Gospel. So today on Oro Valley Catholic, my special guest star is Father Serge Probst. Father Serge, tell people about yourself. Well, if I had to describe myself, it would be as one who desires more than anything else to encounter people with the love and kindness of Jesus Christ. Preparing for that, I have a degree, a PhD in theology. I have taught in uh, the Angelicum in Rome for 15 years and the uh, Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley for another 10 years. But above all, it's not teaching, it's preaching that is my greatest, greatest love. So this is a good chance to turn to the gospel. And I think most, uh, most people remember the gospel. It's a group of Pharisees and scribes bring a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery before our Lord and then uh, set a trap for him according to the gospel. And so imagine this woman at Jesus' feet, the Pharisees and the scribes asking Jesus to judge her. Would you explain what the trap is? Well, the trap is very simple. If Jesus tries, as it were, to prevent them from stoning her, he will be looked upon as one who breaks the law and disregards the law. And the law being the Torah? The Torah, and the, which is very specific. Caught in adultery, she deserves to be stoned. That's both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, That's right. isn't it? And if, if he uh, allows her to be stoned, then he contradicts his own gospel of mercy, kindness, and the love of God for human beings. But isn't there another dimension to it? If he tries to impose the death penalty on a, wo a woman, the Romans have really taken that as their special jurisdiction. Oh, and yes. Jews, if you remember, aren't allowed to put other Jews to death. No, that's true. So he's actually caught in a twofold trap. One, he contradicts himself or he gives in to the law, in which case now they call him a hypocrite, and that's the death of his mission. Or if he allows her to be stoned to remain faithful to the law, at least in the eyes of the Pharisees, he has now disobeyed Roman law, and Roman law can actually cause him to be crucified or executed according to their norms. So as they say, he's on the horns of a dilemma. He either disobeys the Mosaic law or Roman law. But you know, there's another interesting aspect of this. Leviticus and Deuteronomy say that if a man and woman is caught in adultery, they'll both be stoned. Why do you think there's no man here? Let's call it male chauvinism. So do you think this is an example of a bias going back in the history of the fallen man and woman? Yeah. So at the end, if you remember, Jesus bends down and he starts writing into the dirt. Um, what do you think that's all about? Well, actually, if you go back into both Judaism and the Canaanite religion around them, this is part of the magic. At that time, if you wrote with a, uh, they required, by the way, a piece of iron. With a piece of iron, he's writing with his finger, though. Uh, the name of someone in the dirt, you're damning them to death. In fact, to write their name in the dirt, you can walk upon it. You can ex uh, do all kinds of things to it. They're, they're worthless. They're useless. It's ended. 
you can debase someone by you writing debase their it badly. Name. Yeah. You know, there's other uh, ways that people have looked at this. Probably some of our listeners have heard that Jesus was writing the Pharisees and the scribes' sins in the dirt. But another thing that I thought was interesting was out of Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1. And it says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, which you had referred to. Then, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake thee, shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from thee shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So you think one of the other possible interpretation is Jesus is writing the condemnation of hypo- hypocritical sin in the earth, which would re- fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah 17? That's exactly probably what he's doing. The, the whole point is the Jews would have understood that writing names in the earth is a curse. It's a death sentence. That's the important part. They're, in a sense, now being accused of hypocrisy. So there's another aspect of this. So here's the woman uh, accused at his feet, uh, angry crowd of scribes and Pharisees. They want to know if they're going to stone her. And then one by one they wander off as Jesus writes in the dirt whichever interpretation you adopt. Why does he let the woman go, woman go at the end? Well, I think two things. First of all, he's freed her, in a sense, from the rigidity of the law. He's chased away all of those who can accuse her, and it takes two or three to accuse a person in order to stone them. He's gotten rid of her accusers. Now he's free to show her and us that his mercy is greater than the law, that in fact his mercy fulfills the law. And that opens the doors to that whole notion of Christianity that God wills that all human beings be saved, not just simply the just. It's part of his seeking out and saving sinners. And this is the most blatant sinner possible so that we can identify with her and through her understand that ultimately Jesus isn't applying the law to us. He's applying to us something even superior. That's love. And so we're going to turn in a moment, we're going to talk about Philippians, because that's the second reading for the fifth Sunday of Lent. And St. Paul really goes into that. But I want to underscore something that you said, that if a woman or a man is to be accused of adultery, there has to be at least two witnesses. And so after Jesus writes in the dirt, whatever he writes into the dirt, everybody walks away, leaving him and the woman alone. Effectively, there's no witnesses anymore. That's right, and the law doesn't apply. And so the trap has kind of failed, hasn't it? It's failed completely. You know, one of the interesting things, and you and I have talked about this, about this story about the woman caught in adultery, is that it appears in some manuscripts, early manuscripts in the Gospel of John, it doesn't appear in others. It appears apparently at least one time in the Gospel of Luke, so the story's been moved. What do you think's going on with that? Is this an original story? Is it a story that someone's made up later and no one ever calls them on it? What, why is this not in all the Gospels? Well, first of all, let's be very clear. It is part of the Gospel. The Church has ruled that this is canonical Scripture. So there's no kind of question of whether it is valid or not or whether it shows forth God's word or not. What happens, though, at least in my opinion, is in the early church, there was a division between rigorists and those who showed mercy. The rigorists maintained that, for example, 
if you were apostate during the persecutions, you could never be reconciled to the church again. You were out forever. If you had turned over the if sacred vessels or the sacred books of the church to the Romans to be destroyed, you got, you got excommunicated. Excommun- but it wasn't just excommunicated in which you could, in a sense, later on be reinstituted. With You were out forever. That was it. There was no mercy. No you could only be judged by Jesus after your death. Exactly. But there is another uh, element within the church, though, that maintained that uh, repentance could, in, as it were, open your heart to God's merciful love and forgiveness and restore you to the church. So I really see it as a battle between these two factions within the church itself. Since this is so obviously a guilty person and a, adultery was one of the three sins that could not be forgiven for the rigorists, it's actually contradicting their stance. So if Jesus is able to forgive, as it were, the adulterous woman, he can also forgive those who are apostates and all those who commit murder. You, it opens the doors to God's mercy through the church for the sinner. You know, in the th- middle of the third century, that would be the 200s, there was a huge persecution by Diocletian, and especially in North Africa. Some of the clergy turned over um, the sacred vessels and the books of the church. Well, meanwhile, why, why women like Perpetua and Philistia, two of our great martyrs, were killed. So these two young women are martyred in the priests and the bishops go essentially belly up. And that was a huge scandal in the church. And the Donatists in North Africa, that was a, a schismatic group, refused to forgive those people. And, but Pope Sylvester ruled that they could be forgiven exactly. and reconciled to the church. And that caused a schism in the church of North Africa. And St. Augustine wrote on it. St. Cyprian wrote on it. It was all about the hardliners versus those that thought the church had the treasury of forgiveness, the treasury of uh, Jesus at its fingertips. You know, St. Augustine, in regard to this story, and this is apropos of your point about why it's not perhaps included, St. Augustine wrote about this story, and here's what he wrote. What is the Lord... are you giving approval to immorality? No, let me start that over. What is this, Lord? Are you giving approval to immorality? That must have been the charge of some early Christians, that this story made Jesus look like he was approving adultery. Then Augustine answers his own question. Not at all. Take note of what follows. Quote, go and sin no more, end quote. You see then that the Lord does indeed pass sentence, but it is sin he condemns, not people, One who could have approved of immorality would have said, neither will I condemn you. Go and live as you please. You can be sure that I will acquit you. However much you sin, I will release you from all penalty and from the tortures of hell and the underworld. He did not say that, though. He said, neither will I condemn you. You need have no fear of the past, but beware of what you do in the future. Neither will I condemn you. I have blotted out what you have done. Now observe what I have commanded in order to obtain what I have promised. That's from St. Augustine's homily on the Gospel of John. But you know, in that quote, is he approving immorality? I think that's the answer to the question I asked. The reason it's not in some ancient manuscripts is people were concerned that some of the faithful might think that Jesus was given a pass on adultery. And that is not what this story is about. The story is about the mercy of God. It's about the mercy given to the sinner. 
And she's guilty. There's no question about it. And he's not telling her to do it again. What he's doing is forgiving her so she has another chance now to resist the temptation and to grow stronger in her resistance. And so I think that a general rule that you can take out of this about the church is that over the long run, uh, mercy wins and the hardliners uh, really do not take the day because the whole purpose of the gospel is to reconcile people to God. So this is a good time to turn and consider the second reading for the fifth Sunday of Lent, which is St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so let's take a moment and turn to the reading from St. Paul's letter, the Philippians chapter 3. And it starts out like this. Brothers and sisters, I consider everything as a loss because of the supreme good of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have accepted the loss of all things and consider them so much rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having any righteousness of my own, based on the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, depending on faith to know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What do you think St. Paul is telling us? Well, as I prayed over this, the first thing that came to my mind was something that St. Thomas said. And I think it really sums up everything St. Paul was trying to say. St. Paul says, I consider everything is a loss. There's that beautiful story of St. Thomas when you finish writing, as it were, the office for Corpus Christi. The story goes that Jesus spoke to him and told him he was very pleased with what he had written. So what would St. Thomas really like? Thomas stood for a minute and thought and simply said, non nisi te, other words, nothing if not yourself. To possess Jesus is worth more than anything else, and in possessing Jesus, you possess everything else. To possess something besides Jesus is to lose Jesus, and so in losing Jesus, to lose everything. And St. Paul isn't talking about simply knowing in our intellectual sense. What we keep forgetting is that for the Jewish people, and remember, Paul was a Jew, To know wasn't so much a matter of an intellectual grasp of a truth as it was an experiential knowledge of a reality. And so this isn't knowing about Jesus. This is knowing Jesus personally and intensely in his own life, becoming one with Christ. And so what he's really bringing home for us here is the whole theology and mysticism of union with Jesus. We are in Jesus. Jesus, rather, is in us. We think as he thinks. We speak as he speaks. We act as he acts. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not simply the forgiveness of sins. It goes much further. It is being identified with and living the same life that Jesus lives, and he's living it in me. And so, on the one hand, and this, the gospel is a great example, is here is a woman caught in adultery, would it be just if they'd had the man next to, their, to her and they were both stoned? How it does that promote their salvation? It doesn't seem to me it promotes their salvation at all. That the only answer to the law is mercy. And what that means is there's so much of the law which ends in the death penalty. I mean, there's, it could be imposed yeah. and was imposed. But that mercy allows you another day 
to, as Jesus says in the story of the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Another element to this is very often we understand things as kind of ultimate ends. You committed adultery, that's it, everything is over. Whereas in the gospel, it's not so much an ultimate end as something in which we grow through to grow on. So you aren't simply just trying to defeat this one thing and then the next little thing. You're actually trying to grow constantly. You use everything by God's grace, cooperating with that grace, in order to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So you don't repeat your sins. You try to overcome them. But as you overcome them, there are more barriers you have to meet. And so later on at the end of this Philippians, he talks about running a race. When you're running a race, you don't stop after a couple of steps. The whole point is to keep running the race till you get to the goal. In that sense, our being in Jesus is allowing him to recapitulate our lives into his because he's recapitulated our lives of sin beforehand in living out our life himself. It's a little bit like this. Let me give you an image. I have a good friend who is an Olympic runner. And at one time, I was interested in how he trained. Now, in my poor little mind, I thought what he was doing was finding out how fast his competitors were, and then he would try to beat their, as it were, time. And he looked and said at me and said, that was nonsense. That's not the way to live at all. That's not the way I train at all. I said, well, how do you train? He said, I run as fast as I can. My trainer takes the time. Then I work, exercise, and do everything else so I can beat my time. I never compete against anyone else. That's foolishness. I only compete against myself every time trying to do better than I did before. And this is what I think St. Paul is saying. We're all going to make mistakes. That's not the question. No mistake is, is the end in which you stop and give up. Rather, in each one of them, we repent, and in repenting, we learn from them and grow through them so we can do better later, and we constantly run that race, always from goal to goal, trying constantly to be more and more like Jesus. Well, and in that is the whole sense of what mystical union is, to be an altar Christus, another Christ, why Thomas Kempis wrote in imitation of Christ, but also it's about our sacramental economy that we will be celebrating at the Easter Vigil especially, in baptism or baptized him to his death. In the sacrament of confirmation, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we come to the Eucharist, we eat his flesh, we drink his blood. I was telling a group the other day that our director of religious education said she was talking to one of the students who suggested uh, having Eucharist where he ate Jesus' flesh and blood was cannibalism. Uh, and I suggest to her what she should answer is, uh, no, cannibalism's when you eat a dead person. He's quite alive when we're eating them. This is what mystical union is. It is. Being tied into the one who cannot die. And it's always that gross. That's the sacrament of, of reconciliation. We're, if we live in this corrupt world, it's going to get to us. We are going to make mistakes, let's just be honest. But we don't want to have to face the world day after day with a load of mistakes just building more and more and more and more. We go into the sacrament, and in a certain sense, God washes us clean and sends us out to fight the battle again. If we're wise, we've learned from our past, and with his grace, we can do better. But we're living in this world, and we're going to build up that load again. We come back in, we, as it were, uh, get ourselves cleaned up, and we go out again. It's a little bit like 
washing dishes. How would you like to go to someone's house where the person who washed the dishes said they've been washing dishes for years and it's never done any good, the sink is always filled with new dirty dishes? And so they decided not to wash the dishes anymore. You want to eat there? No, in fact, we need to wash the dishes and get them clean. If you live, if you're eating, you're going to dirty the dishes again, you keep cleaning them. So the sacrament of reconciliation isn't something we use every now and then. It should be a part of our, our, our Christian lives at least once a month. Get yourself cleaned up. Or it's like a credit card. You're going to use it. The debt builds up. You just don't let it build. You get it paid off. You somehow clean it out. So again, this union with Jesus is growing into Jesus. And it's not something that just stops. It's something that continues to the day we drop dead. And so here's a good way to bring this reflection on St. Paul to an end. Because St. Paul's, uh, the pericope from, the, from this week's uh, reading from St. Paul ends like this. Brothers and sisters, I for my part do not consider myself to have taken possession just one thing, forgetting what lies behind, but straining forward to what lies ahead. That's mercy and forgiveness. The goal is union with Christ. I continue my pursuit toward the goal, the prize of God's upward calling in Christ Jesus. The law never promised that, Father Serge, but Christ promised that, and that's why we celebrate the sacraments at Easter. We're going to bring this to a conclusion in the next section when I want to talk about uh, women in the church and especially some of the things that have been happening uh, worldwide in, in our Catholic community. And so that was Father Serge and my take on the woman caught in adultery and Paul's letter to the Philippians about how it is that we're called to union with Christ. But you know, often this story of the woman call, caught in adultery is preached a very different way. And it's really obvious, and you may have asked yourself about it when you first heard the story read. Um, remember, the woman is brought to the feet of Jesus by the scribes and the Pharisees and accused of being caught in the very act of adultery. Well, she's caught in the very act of adultery. Where's the man? The idea that the Old Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, only punished women for adultery isn't true. Uh, men and women caught in adultery were supposed to be stoned according to the law. So why just the woman? Well, if you take a modernist view of it, it's about patriarchy, isn't it? It's about women are treated differently than men and that this man, woman is being controlled by the Pharisees. It's as if you were listening to the story of Afghanistan where the Taliban has banned teenage women from uh, continuing their education or adult women uh, in Afghanistan, especially in Kabul, cannot go out in public without a male escort. You can't underestimate of the reality of uh, misogyny in the world. But really, if the law says men and women both are to be punished the same for adultery, you know, that may be stretching this story a little bit. What really is involved, I think, at the heart of the woman caught in adultery 
in the Gospel of John is the whole story, if you remember, of Jesus, the divine bridegroom. It's Jesus who takes the place as the bridegroom at the wedding of Cana in chapter 2. He describes himself as the divine bridegroom. St. John the Baptist in the Gospel of John says that Jesus uh, is the bridegroom and John the Baptist is the best man. And so the idea of God coming to marry his people is really foundational in um, the Gospel of John. It's why at the crucifixion scene, Jesus will say to his mother, woman, behold your child, and, or son, and then he says to the beloved disciple, son, behold your mother. Mary is the stand-in for the church in this, um, this pure relationship between the new Adam and the new Eve, which is prophetically made present at the crucifixion. And it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And you may remember that in the book of the prophet Hosea, Hosea is complaining about the idol worship of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in, to, to make his prophecy made known, what he does is that he takes a prostitute as his wife because Israel is compared to an adulteress. Israel is compared to, an adult, uh, to uh, uh, a prostitute. So that the prophet Hosea, like God, will uh, cleanse this fallen woman Israel from her sins and marry her. And that's also picked up in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. It's what's behind the whole idea of Jesus as the divine bridegroom. So if you read this story, not simply as a moral tale about the punishment of a woman for adultery, the, my, but the man is set free, if you see it as enacting something prophetic between God and his church, um, the bridegroom and the divine and the bride, uh, I think you're probably not far off in the role this story play. But St. Augustine's concerned that it would seem that, um, that Christ was uh, condoning adultery might very well be uh, true given some of the real rigorous nature of the early church. And, but there's other issues. And the other issues is simply the modern reading of the story that sees it as patriarchy or misogyny. Um, because the church has been coming to terms with uh, women in the church. You know, in it, the parish level, I think everybody is very used to the idea that women, uh, both as employees and volunteers, really run uh, the parish. Uh, pretty much our entire office staff in the parish is female. Our little tot staff is almost entirely female. I think the only male employees we have are either in our music program or in our maintenance department. But you know, at the diocesan level, again, the employees of the church are overwhelmingly female, but also leadership roles. The the superintendent of Catholic schools is a female. The, the, the head of the human resources department is a female. The head of the uh, Catholic foundation is a female in our diocese. And our chancellor is a female. Those are four very substantial leadership programs in the diocese of Tucson. They're all staffed by women. But the major complaint has been about Rome. 
I think we all get that Africa, India, China, South America, maybe Oceania, uh, women's roles are different than we experience them in the United States. But we expect that Europe would be more like the United States. But here's some interesting statistics. And they call it the stained glass ceiling at the Vatican. In 2010, 17.6% of all the employees of the Vatican were women. Now in uh, 2019, 24% of the employees in the Vatican are women. But there's also women in leadership positions throughout the, the, the Vatican. Um, the city, uh, in the, both the city governance of Vatican as, a, as an independent nation, um, women who have worked in, in the Vatican Library and now run the Vatican Museum. You know, interestingly, the first woman ever employed in the Vatican was uh, started her job back in 1915. And so it hasn't exactly been dramatic growth. But, you know, if you look at the history of women working outside the home uh, in the United States, it, it, it's more like what our national experience is. And you remember that the translating the United States or uh, migrating from work on the farm or in uh, rural areas where men and women work pretty much side by side really changed when people started moving to the cities and it became wage jobs. And so that may be part of what's happened in the Vatican. I don't, I don't really know. But the fact that there were more women in leadership of the Vatican is, is an interesting thing. Um, in 2009, three women had leadership roles in the Vatican. Uh, now it's uh, eight out of a possible 80 to 100 such roles over in the, that's you know, still a long ways to go. In the Vatican press office, most of the employees are women. For the very first time, the Synod of Bishops has an interim secretary. That's the second highest role in the department that uh, really is uh, responsible for appointing bishops um, is, is a woman. And the Pope has been appointing women um, to, as the to the governance of the Vatican city-state and as the director of the Vatican Museum. But still, uh, the Vatican especially is a clerical culture. Um, but at different levels, like Pope Francis appointed six laywomen to the previously all-male council for the economy. Um, but that I think the experience, if you read the Catholic press, is that women have experienced the clerical culture in the church, and clericalism has been at the root of so many of the church's problems. So the reading of this story that somehow this is about patriarchy, you know, often when we read the scripture, we read our own preoccupations into the Bible. Something that's meant as prophetic about God mirroring his people becomes a mirror for our own uh, 21st century concerns about the role of women in uh, the church life. For the very first time, I should call, conclude by saying the Pope is going to admit women to the roles of lector and acolyte. They've been doing that for years in the United States, but not everywhere in the world. And lector, acolyte are the two first offices that you're installed in before you become a deacon and before you become a priest. 
So out of those four roles that a priest is, is, uh, is brought into, uh, women can occupy two of them. So, friends, that's where we're at, for better or for worse. Well, God bless you, and thanks for listening again to Oral Valley Catholic.